1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the story of the cross. So often we lose sight of what you have done for us. We lose sight of what the cross really means, the kind of grace, the kind of freedom that we have and we end up living like we're still in bondage and still in slavery. This morning as we learn about you and as we talk about the story of the cross, the gospel, the good news. I pray that you will touch all of our hearts and move us to understand exactly not only what that does for us, but to reveal to us who you are, reveal to us more of your character. We come here today wanting to learn about you. I pray that you will open our hearts to be receptive, that the words that I speak would not be my words, they would be your words, and that we would come to love you and know you even more because of what we discover about you today. In your name we pray, amen. I'll be honest, um, I was just down there praying and asking God to remove some of the doubt that I feel right now because I feel so often like when the word is preached, not, not by just me, just when it's preached in general, so often it falls on deaf ears. And then we sang a song about how God is always working. And he continues to reassure me of that every day. So we've been in our, our series that um, Kenny started off and, and um, he said, what do you want first, the good news or the good news? And I, I love that name. And I also love that I think it's really cool. It's kind of going to be actually setting up what we talk about at camp in a couple of weeks. So what we talk about at camp is going to play off of this series, and so it's, that wasn't really planned. I think that's just the way God works things out for his glory. Um, but today, in the course of that message, I'm gonna preach the simple gospel to you, the story of the cross, because I think as Christians, for whatever reason, we have a tendency to walk around so defeated sometimes to walk around with a fire that is so dimly lit, if it's lit at all. And I want us to understand that not only do we have no reason for that, but we have every reason to sacrifice everything we have for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to preach to you the gospel, because I can't make you or myself or anyone believe it. I can, however, assure that you at least know it, because you can't believe it if you don't know it. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to address 
certain misconceptions of the gospel that I think we often have, either because we grew up with it or it's just popular in society and culture, but that's what I'm going to do today. And if, if you like lists, if you're an organized person that like lists and you take notes, today is your day, okay? Because we're just, you're going to be able to number it off as we go. And so as I cover these misconceptions, what I'm going to do is I'm going to present the truth to you, and then I'm going to explain to you what misconception that that deals with or addresses, and that may be kind of confusing right now, but as soon as I go into it, you'll understand what I mean. So number one, the first thing, we deserve the death that Jesus received. Now, almost all of you know that. The problem is that I don't really know if we believe it most of the time. One of the key themes in the Bible, the Bible has a couple of things that it just are, are reoccurring themes over and over and over again on every page. And one of the key themes in the Bible, especially regarding us, is that since the fall of Adam and Eve, the only thing that we as humans do consistently well is sin. That's it. The psalmist in Psalm 51.5 said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He knew not even from the moment he was born, from the moment he was conceived, he had this sin nature to where his, his default setting, if you will, his default mode inside his soul was to sin. And what that has caused in us is a righteous wrath from God. It's caused a righteous death that we deserve. Matthew 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. So if you are a Christian and have been a Christian for any period of time and you've talked to friends of yours that are non-Christian, one of the first arguments that they will bring up to you is they will say, okay, yeah, we've done some bad things, we mess up, but how could a good God really send some people to hell? How is, how is hell, eternity in hell, a place of, of torment and punishment, a proper response to a, maybe it is a life filled with sin, but a life filled with sin that only lasts 60 or 70 or 80 years. That's what you'll get. But the thing is, we know the answer to this question. We deal with it every day in life. We see it all the time. In life, when something happens and we have to deter determine the proper consequences for that thing, how do we determine that? How do we determine the punishment for anything bad that's done? It's dependent upon the value of the thing that the bad thing was committed against. So if I take my key out right here, okay, and I have, let's say I have like a little Hot Wheels car in my hand and I start scratching it, right? I'm not going to get in trouble. Y'all are just going to think I'm really weird. Like, what is that guy doing? But then if I go to a junkyard or a scrapyard, and I find a car in a scrapyard and I start scratching it. I'm going to get in trouble. But most likely, the thing I'm going to get in trouble for the most is that I'm trespassing on private property. They'll still probably be mad about the car, but that's going to be like an add-on, right? 
they're going to be most mad that I'm on their property and I'm not supposed to be. I'm not authorized. But then if I go out in the parking lot and I find one of your cars and I start scratching it, I've now committed a felony. That's a, that's a, a major fine, probably a little bit of time in jail. But then if I go to a Ferrari dealership and I find a car on the lot and I start scratching it, I'm in a world of hurt. Like I'm going to jail for several years because every time the value of what I scratched increased. So if we say that we believe the Bible and what it says about God and about us, and if God is truly the holy and righteous Savior and creator of the world that is deserving of all praise and everything that is in existence is in existence to glorify him with every essence of its being as long as it exists, and we rebel against him, how are we deserving of anything less than hell? So we, we, we say we know that we deserved that death and punishment that Christ took for us, but I don't think we always believe that. And that's the start. We have to understand and believe that. Number two, and this one, I'll be honest, this is going to probably rile some people up because it's contrary, especially in the South, to what you have grown up being told. Salvation is God's choice. It is not ours. The Bible makes this too clear for us to shrug it off or try to think anything different. Many people will argue, again, this goes with the previous argument, that God is not good or loving if he lets some people go to hell, but only some people go to heaven. But I want you to hear what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14. He's addressing this very issue, and he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Notice none of these verbs are passive. These are action verbs. He has mercy, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, okay, if it's his choice, why doesn't everyone go to heaven? Why does he let anyone go to hell? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Listen to these next three verses. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called not from the Jews, but, only, but also from the Gentiles? It's clear as day. There's no way around it. To reject it is to reject the scripture. 
And it's actually a form of grace that he gives us because if it were left up to us, no one would choose him. Number three, the cross was not against God's will. And I'll even go further to say that God actively killed Jesus. There's a very popular book. It was written a couple years ago, and it's called Did God Kill Jesus? And it was written by a leader of the newly formed and kind of uprising emergent church, and his name is Tony Jones. And admittedly, I haven't read the book, but I watched a video where he explained the purpose of the book. And the purpose of the book, as he says, is to explain that the cross was not a tool for God pouring out wrath or God killing Jesus, but rather a tool of God to pour out his love on mankind. Well, I agree with him that the cross was a tool for pouring out his love to mankind. But to say that it was not in his, it was not in his will or it was not an act of God is to then create an illogical fallacy Because if the death of Jesus was not an act of God, then how was it an act of pouring out God's love? If I look down here and Kenny's on fire and I stand here and look at him while Tony goes and gets a fire extinguisher or a blanket or a jacket and puts the fire out and then once the fire's out, I look at you and go, I did that because I love you, man. What have I done? I've watched it happen. I didn't want him to be on fire, but I didn't save him either. How was I loving him in that moment? Isaiah 53 makes this clear that the death of Jesus was not only according to the will of God, it was an act of God. Starting in verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. Again, that's an active verb. That is not a passive verb. Has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, meaning God, has put him, meaning Jesus, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Again, it's clear. There's no way to work around it. There's no way to avoid it. It is too clear. The next point 
which kind of goes right along with this one, is that Christ did not go to the cross unwillingly. The, the previous truth that I presented that the, the cross was an act of God, people will then say, okay, well then, does that mean God is some kind of cosmic child abuser who would do wicked and terrible things to his son? Okay, well, that's then to reject the doctrine of the Trinity, which is to say that the Father and Son, along with the Holy Spirit, are one. There is nothing that one ever does that is outside of the will of the other. Wherever one is, so are the other two. When God spoke to Moses through the burning bush, the Son and the Holy Spirit were there. When Jesus died on the cross, the Holy Spirit and the Father were there. When a person comes to believe Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, the Father and the Son are there. At all moments in time, they are in perfect accord, perfect allegiance, perfect agreement on everything. There's not even a sense of toleration. It's perfect 100% agreement. So Christ went to the cross willingly because it was the Father's will, it was His will, it was the Holy Spirit's will. And let me read this in, in John chapter 10, starting in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Christ did not go to the cross unwillingly. It was perfectly within his will and the Father's will and the Holy Spirit's will. The next thing I want you to see is that the ransom for our sin, which we've determined, Christ's death on the cross paid a ransom for our sin because we owed God a ransom that we could never give him. But Christ's sin paid for it. But that's, or, I'm sorry, Christ's um, death paid for our sin. But that's the thing about it. It paid God. It did not pay Satan. Many people think of hell as the absence of God. But let me be very clear. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the eternal absence of God's love with the eternal presence of his wrath. Hell is not the place where Satan will be tormenting all those who, do not, who did not come to have faith in Christ. It is the place where Satan, along with all of those who did not come to have faith in Christ, will be tormented. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10 tells us that. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. 
Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We get this idea, and it's, it's very popular in the, the famous C.S. Lewis book and movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where I think it's um, Edward is taken captive by um, the white witch, and then Aslan has to go and give himself as a sacrifice to the white witch. She lets Edward go, but then it's all a trick, and Aslan actually is alive again, and the white witch is defeated. And it's a great and powerful story, but it's not completely accurate. The ransom is not paid to Satan. The Bible makes it clear, actually, that, and it says this in Revelation 1, that Christ, because of his death and resurrection, now holds the keys to Hades and death and sin. It has no power on the children of God because the ransom is not paid to Satan. It's a wonderful truth that I think we misunderstand. We, talk, we, we, we go around talking about how Satan is our biggest enemy and, and he's the one we need to watch out for the most. And, and, and we do need to pay attention. But in Matthew 10, 28, it says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And many people will say, because that says in hell, it's talking about Satan. But no, it actually is talking about Satan along with other men when it says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. When it says, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, it's talking about God because Satan does not have that power. It was taken from him on the cross. My last point, number six, Jesus did not die to make us happy, healthy, wealthy, and good. I talk about this pretty often, and I'm sure some of you are tired of it, but let's get rid of it then. Let's get over this idea that Jesus died so we could have everything that we want. He is not a vending machine. He's not the genie from Aladdin. Do you get what I'm saying? Like we, we treat God like a vending machine. Like we put a little money in the offering plate. We come to church occasionally. If we're really good, we listen to worship music in our car. And because of that, we're supposed to get what we want. Or if not, we're at least supposed to be comfortable. That's the big one. Most people can accept that they're not gonna have everything that they want, but they cannot accept that they don't necessarily have to be comfortable. The Bible is not against wealth. It's really not. It, it focuses on what we do with it, but it's not against it. The Bible is not there to say, if you have a job that pays good money, you need to quit that job. God may call you to do that. He may not. He may call you to do something with a lot of that money. But what we see, if you look at the Old Testament and the children of Israel, if you look at the history of the church after the death and the resurrection of Christ, what you will see is that the gospel does not advance through the wealth of God's children, but rather the suffering of God's children. 
In Luke 9, 58, it says that the author of our faith, Jesus Christ, had no place to lay his head. And then in Isaiah 53, I'm going to go back and read verses 2 and 3 for you again. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces... He was despised and we esteemed him not. If that is Christ, then what will we have? Because see, we we really misunderstand, I think, what the, the death of Christ was for. It paid the ransom, it paid the price, and it, it granted us redemption. But understand that was not an earthly redemption because the punishment was an eternal punishment. So the redemption that, that paid the price for that punishment that appeased the wrath of God was an eternal redemption. So to expect that Christ died so we could live our best life now, as Joel Osteen loves to say, is to have a misunderstanding of not only the cross, but who Jesus is in general. And a lot of times it's an intentional misunderstanding. Please know that. But then you go, okay, does that mean we're supposed to become a Christian and our lives are, excuse me, supposed to suck for the rest of our life? Like it's just, and that's the beautiful thing about it. That's where God's grace is shown even more in that our circumstances may become worse. Your depression and anxiety and and physical illness may get worse. You may lose your job. You may lose your marriage, your relationship with your family and your kids and your friends. You may lose your money. But yet all the while, your joy and your peace increases. And that goes back to the, the verse I read before I prayed, 1 Corinthians 1.18. That is foolishness to people who don't understand it because people outside of Jesus find their worth in their circumstances. But we're called to something greater than that. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. So it says that suffering is the way that the Holy Spirit actually witnesses to our heart that Christ has set us apart for himself. And then Paul, when he has the thorn in his flesh and he asks God to remove it in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse nine, he says that God told him, no, because my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It's an unbelievable grace and truth that we can hold on to in the worst of times that while our circumstances may get worse, our joy and hope and love and peace continues to increase. I want to read just a a verse of a hymn um, called He Giveth More Grace, and it was written by a woman named Annie Johnson Flint, and she was born in 1866. And when she was three years old, her mother died giving birth and her father had an incurable illness that had pretty much made him unable to work. Their mother was providing for the family. And so her father could not take care of them. And so they were orphaned for a short period of time until they were taken in 
by a, a couple of family members. She went into a career as an educator, but two or three years into that, she actually had to quit because at a young age, she had developed arthritis and it became so severe to the point that she couldn't walk very well. She later, um, closer to her death, she died in 1933, closer to her death, she developed cancer, which caused her arthritis to get even worse, obviously. And when she finally died from that cancer, she had actually gone completely blind. But around 10 years before her death, she wrote this hymn, and I want to read this to you. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Whew, that gave me chills. I don't want to suffer, I'll be honest with you, but I want to be right there, wherever that is. And it seems to me like that's at the foot of the cross. And the Bible makes it clear that the foot of the cross is full of suffering. And if that's what that means, then I'm okay with it because nothing else is worth it. Y'all, do you get it? If you don't, if, if we don't get this, if we don't have this, nothing else matters. Our job our family, nothing. When it dies or, or when we die, the part of it that relates to us dies with us. It turns right back to dust. We've got to get this. Now, I, I also said at the end of this point, he also didn't come to make us good. And I want to clarify, sanctification which is the lifelong process of God making his children more like Christ every day is a very biblical concept. Jesus alludes to it. Paul alludes to it. it it's, a, it's a biblical concept. It's real. But that doesn't mean we will come to a point where we are perfect or that we will come to a point where we don't mess up anymore. When we die and stand before Jesus, understand we will still be deserving of hell. We will still be deserving of hell but his children will not receive it because of the blood of Jesus. The beautiful thing is that the aim of Jesus and his death was not to make us perfect in this life. If you want that, Mormonism is your religion or Hinduism or Islam or really any other religion but Christianity is yours. But I, I love what Ravi Zacharias said may he rest in peace. He said, the thing that distinguishes Christianity from other religions is that Christ did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. That is the gospel. And so as we sum up the cross, I, I, I want to make sure we're on the same page of what the story of the gospel is. God created us to glorify him with every ounce of our being. 
but we rebelled against him and continue to rebel daily against the only holy and righteous God and creator of the universe. This rebellion ruined our once unity with him and made us objects of his righteous anger and wrath. But God, being rich in mercy and love, decided to set apart and save certain people by paying the ransom for their wrongdoing that they could never pay. That's you and me. That's all of us. To do this, he sent his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life and met every requirement of the law. Jesus, according to the sovereign action and will of the Father, willingly died and in doing so, paid the ransom to God to appease his wrath. But I want us to be clear in understanding that it didn't stop there. If it stopped there that he just died paying our ransom, we really wouldn't have a hope because that means that our king is dead. But I want to read this to you. And this is Mark 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. I said earlier that sometimes we walk around with this light that's barely lit, if it's lit at all. We walk around defeated, and oftentimes we feel defeated. Imagine what the disciples and followers of Jesus must have felt like. They saw who they really thought was the God of the universe in the flesh work miracles. He brought people from dead back to life. He healed people and then he just dies. If it stayed that way, we would have a right to walk around with a light that is barely lit, if lit at all. But it doesn't stop right there. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. For us to walk around seemingly hopeless is to deny the power of God that is found in the cross. We have no excuse for love and mercy and grace and overwhelming joy to not overflow out of our hearts. None. There is nothing that can happen to us that is an excuse for that to not happen. So why don't we start living, or why don't we stop living like he stayed in the tomb and start living like he got up and walked out? Because when he did, death and sin and the power of Satan was sealed up back in the tomb. But he wasn't there, he was gone. Let's live like that. 
Father, thank you for your word and for your son who did not stay in the tomb, but he has risen and he has walked out and he is now sitting on his throne at your right hand. And because of that, he bought the keys to sin and death and hell so that it has no power over those who have faith in you and your saving work. It was not a gift that we deserved. We could never do anything to deserve it never do anything to earn it but you gave it to us freely out of your mercy and love father there are those in this room who today and and maybe for their whole lives have been denying the power and the knowledge of knowing that your son walked out he walked out on death he left death behind that's the case this morning I pray that you will absolutely obliterate their hearts that you will tear them into pieces so that you can put in them a heart of flesh that replaces that heart of stone that was there father light a light in us that is inextinguishable that shows the world that we have something different not that it's of us but that people look at us and what we claim to believe and they want to know this Jesus that we know please do this this morning break hearts for your glory 